The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Our reading for today is a familiar one. It comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, beginning with the eighth verse. Listen now for God's word to you. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. This past week, I read a newspaper column fretting about Mother's Day. Mother's Day, the author complained, is a saccharine invention. The complaint has traction. I know Mother's Day is a hard day for some folk. Still, part of me wanted to take the holiday's side. Mother's Day is not actually a syrupy invention. Uh, not really, not if you take a close look at its history. There's more to Mother's Day than meets the eye. Still, let's start today with the hard truth. Mother's Day really does stir up complicated emotions in people's hearts. Every spring, when the day appears on our calendars, people begin processing some fairly heavy memories, expectations, and hopes. Some worry over mothers who are ill or who struggle with memory issues. Some mourn deceased mothers. Some people never knew their mother, and some wish they had a good relationship with their mom, but do not. Some women hope and pray that they will become mothers, even as they grapple with infertility or try to navigate difficult adoption processes, while at the same time others find the demands of mothering to be a tremendous challenge. Some women do not feel called to be mothers and resent the cultural pressures of the day. And yes, there are those who simply feel guilty because they forgot to send a card or order the flowers. And plenty of folk, 
embrace Mother's Day with a sort of easy vigor. <laughs> Typically, when I enter the church on Mother's Day pre-pandemic, one of our head ushers, Tom Crofus, will greet me. Happy Mother's Day, Pastor. And I respond, Happy Mother's Day, Tom. It's sort of a funny exchange. As I ride the elevator up to my office, I wonder, what did we just do? <laughs> Were we simply observing the pleasantries by tipping our hats to the holiday? Were we acknowledging that everyone was born to a mother? Were we celebrating that simple fact? Or were we sort of carelessly repeating saccharine words without giving them a second thought? I mean, why else would two men wish each other a happy Mother's Day? The actual words Mother's Day first appear in the American conversation in a proclamation written in 1870 by Julia Ward Howe. Yes, that Julia Ward Howe, the suffragette and author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. In 1870, five years after the official end of the American Civil War, Howe called for an international gathering of individuals who had tallied the terrible cost of war on a very personal level, mothers. She wrote, let mothers meet as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace, each bearing the sacred impress, not of Caesar, but of God. Howe's proclamation did not result in an annual gathering of mothers, but it, it did enter the nation's subconscious. And, and, and then, 38 years later, along came Anna Jarvis. In 1908, Jarvis, a woman from Grafton, West Virginia, chose a beautiful spring day to hand out flowers at her church. Everyone got a flower, women, men, children too, all in honor of her mother. Jarvis' mother was a force of nature, a woman worth celebrating. A pacifist and healthcare advocate, Ann Jarvis Sr. worked as a nurse during the Civil War, providing medical care for soldiers from both the North and the South. After the war, she cared for the sick during typhoid fever outbreaks and taught hygiene to women and children across West Virginia and Virginia. She was an amazing woman. Following her death, Jarvis' daughter wanted to pay tribute to her mom, so she passed out flowers at her church to honor her life and her work. Soon other churches in the region joined in, and what began as one woman honoring her mother by passing out carnations to everyone quickly became a day for all people to celebrate mothers and honor their work. Within six years, the simple observance that began on the steps of a Methodist church in West Virginia spread across the country, and in 1913, the United States Congress passed a law designating the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. All of this is to say, I think the women who founded the holiday would enjoy seeing Tom and I wish each other a happy Mother's Day. These salutations convey that the 
the historical roots of the day are intact. This is a day when everyone can get a flower, when everyone can celebrate the individuals, often women, who care for the most at-risk members of our society, the people who draw our attention to the beautiful faces of the vulnerable. And this, by the way, is precisely the point where the Christian tradition undergirds the historical roots and ethical impulses of Mother's Day. At, at Princeton Seminary, I took a theology class taught by Dr. James Loder. The first assignment in the class was to read a portion of the works of Jean Piaget, the Swiss developmental psychologist. Piaget is most famous for describing the cognitive stages that children experience, starting as newborns and proceeding until adulthood. It's interesting material, but I wasn't sure what it had to do with theology. Then I heard Professor Loder's first lecture. Loder pointed out that one of the first cognitive skills manifest by infants is the ability to recognize the face of their mother. Recently, researchers at MIT agreed. Infants, they declared, are hardwired for facial recognition. Piaget believed that an infant's ability to quickly recognize the face of a loving provider, be it a mother or a father or a grandparent or someone else, was the underpinning of the child's cognitive development. As, as a child matures, it comes to realize that the, the benevolent face looking down at them in the crib is, is not permanent. The face of love comes and goes. Recognizing this, most children across all human cultures experience a period of separation anxiety somewhere around nine months of age. Psychologists have spent a good bit of time trying to understand the roots of this anxiety. What is this crying, clinging, hand-wringing worry that comes over a child when she or he begins to anticipate the departure of a face they know and love? My professor at Princeton, Dr. Loder, argued that a child's separation anxiety, this this longing for a face that will not go away is actually the most basic of all human longings. These little ones, said Loder, are craving what every human heart craves. They are yearning for the face of God. I've never been able to look at a baby the same way. Of course, it might seem like this concept heaps crazy amounts of pressure on parents, right? Here you go, this is your baby, you can take her home. Just remember that when this child looks up at you, she's expecting to discover the face of God. How can we possibly live up to that? We can't, and our tradition acknowledges this. We're all flawed lenses, imperfect windows into the divine. For now we see in a mirror dimly, writes the Apostle Paul, but then we will see face to face. Knowing this, knowing our flaws and other flaws, we, we wait, we 
hold out for that day when we will be our truest selves, when we will be able to see clearly face to face. All of this makes me wonder if we ever really get over separation anxiety. As adults, we simply call it something different. Loneliness, maybe even despair. Whatever term you want to use, the experience haunts our days and drives our faith. We are searching, always searching for the face that will not go away. We live our lives asking every day, asking, where is it? Where is the face of love? Our hunger for this face is so profound that, that sometimes we settle for false faces, fraudulent loves, trying to fill the deep longing in our hearts. What's the alternative? Where can we catch a glimpse, even a dim one, of God's true face? Here our faith provides counsel. Here Christ's words help us. It, it's possible, Jesus informs the disciples, to see the face of love in a neighbor, in a person in need, in a child asking for a blessing. Truly, I tell you, says our Lord, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. In these words, we return to the belief that fueled Anna Jarvis in the very first Mother's Day. The testimony of our faith is that when we gaze on the face of the vulnerable, we are also seeing the face of God. This past week, I rewatched The Way, Way Back. It's a top 10 film for me, and I've mentioned it to some of you before. The title of the movie refers to the third seat in a 1970 Buick Electra station wagon, the seat that faces backwards out the back window. As the movie opens, Duncan, a rumpled 14-year-old, is riding in the way, way back. His mom is sleeping in the front seat and her scuzzy boyfriend, Trent, is driving. As they chug along, Trent poses a question to Duncan. On a scale of one to 10, what do you think you are? I don't know, Duncan responds. What don't you know, Trent prods. One to 10, pick a number. The boy shrugs. <laughs> a six? Hmm. When I look at you, Trent replies, I see a three. Let's see if we can get that score up this summer. As the car rolls along, the pain of this assessment washes over the young boy's face. It's the sort of quietly eviscerating moment that we know happens in station wagons and classrooms and on Zoom meetings. It happens all the time. So it's with relief that we watch Duncan sneak away every summer day to find a job and a community at a local water park, Water Whiz, is staffed by a deliciously odd collection of seasonal employees, including Owen, a manager who befriends the vulnerable teenager 
eventually Duncan confides to his boss the source of his heavy heart. I hate him. Who? My mom's boyfriend. And then through tears, Duncan chokes out. He called me a three. He asked me to rate myself on a score of one to 10, and then he called me a three. Who says that to somebody? Quickly, wisely, Owen responds, somebody who doesn't know you. Owen's response, of course, is love. For love is being known, fully known, and at the same time being fully embraced, fully accepted. Love is Ann Jarvis Sr. looking in the faces of Union and Confederate soldiers and seeing only God's wounded children. Love is that moment when a baby looks up at you and sees in your face a glimpse of the infinite. And love is looking back down at that little face and seeing the same. Love is staring in the eyes of a 14-year-old, any 14-year-old, and seeing a 10. Love happens whenever the foggy glass in front of our eyes clears for a moment and we find ourselves staring at the one thing our hearts desire more than anything else, the face of God. Have courage, my friends. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen.